This is episode 36 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Monday, June 13th, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Ryan Bemrose. The last couple of weeks have been hectic. Not on the ATN front, though. That's been kind of quiet. Some of you may have even noticed that I've come to redefine late as it pertains to the podcast. Since the loss of my last paying dude named Ben gig a, a few months ago, his business went under, let's go Brandon, my wife and I have had to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to come up with next month's mortgage on this 1,600 square foot middle class mansion floating across atop the Seattle housing bubble. If Angry Tech News was able to fix that, you'd have five episodes a week, but it isn't, and you don't. I'd like to promise that the schedule will become more regular, but as an old mentor of mine was fond of saying, deliver results, not promises. You'll know if I finally got my shit together when ATN starts coming out on time again. For those of you desperate to hear more of my grating voice during these turbulent times, I did briefly get back with my old co-host Darren O'Neill to do a live episode of Grumpy Old Ben's last Sunday. If you want to hear that episode, go to grumpyoldbens.com. What amazed me the most about that is that we didn't feel rusty after a 10-month hiatus. It felt like just yet another weekly episode, to be honest. I don't know if that means the two of us have an uncommon on-air chemistry or if we're just really good at faking it. We did spend quite a bit of time geeking out like giddy schoolgirl podcasters over the new podcasting 2.0 features we brought in, like live tag and live boost. They are legitimately cool features, although. We were behind the news cycle on this one. Other podcasters have been doing live shows with these tools for months. The only part of it I didn't like was our tendency to interrupt the flow of the show to read out boost messages, something I despise when other podcasters do it and come to think of it when YouTubers do it too. Donations are obviously important to the value for value model, but sacrificing content quality to read donations makes the show worse, even my own. I mark that one up to giddiness over the new toys to be played with. Fortunately, Grumpy Old Ben's never had much content quality to sacrifice. Since the last ATN, I also made an appearance on Bowls with Buds with friends Sir Spencer and Dame Lorian. I was alongside my wife Dame Bemrose and my brother Bemlet, who got me so drunk I probably shouldn't be advertising the appearance right now. If you want to hear that one, check it out, episode 164 at bowlafterbowl.com. But back to angry tech news. This episode will be somewhat dated. I need to clear out a couple stories slash rants that are getting stale waiting for me to write more content. It turns out the news cycle stubbornly moves on whether I podcast about it or not, but I took the time to write these up so you're going to hear about it no matter how yesterday's news it is. You may expect fresh ATN with fresh and more current stories next week. I promise. From the I Fought the Blockchain Department. This story first popped up mere hours after I finished last episode's research, but I would never let a story's age interfere with an opportunity to ridicule not only NFTs, but celebrities as well. So yeah, this was last month. I'm telling it anyway. Seth Green is an actor known mainly for his portrayal of an endless line of sarcastic nerds in movies with plots as varied as the heist movie with some implausible technology to that one where the nerd uses technobabble to break into something. He is slightly lesser known for his creative talent behind the camera in the writer's room being the creator of shows like Robot Chicken, 
And while I can't think of any others, but if you honestly care, go check IMDb. You know who this guy is. Well, Seth, oh, Seth, may I call you Seth? Has been working the last few months developing a new animated show called White Horse Tavern, built around its main character, Bored Ape number 8398, henceforth known as Fred. As you may remember from Angry Tech News 33, Bored Apes are NFTs of images of AI-generated cartoon apes, sold and resold for outrageous sums of money by the kind of people who think that NFTs are worth the kind of money they're paying. You may also recall that one of the gimmicks of the Bored Ape NFTs is that all copyrights to the images are assigned to the holder of the NFT, according to the terms of service. Hence why Seth can use the ape he purchased back in 2021 and build a new show around it. To be fair, it's kind of a cool gimmick, if Seth is creative enough to pull it off. But there's a problem. According to numerous tabloid rags, mostly citing Seth's Twitter account, Seth is not quite as tech-savvy as the nerds he played in the movies. Seth got fished. The stories are a bit vague on exactly how this happened, but we can infer that somehow Seth, or someone with access to his NFT wallet, clicked on the wrong link or gave permissions to the wrong app, and suddenly Seth's NFT wallet is empty, dozens of NFTs being transferred out with the script kitty precision. Within an hour, the scammer sold off the ape NFT to another buyer who then transferred it to into another collection. Now, if you recall a few minutes ago, I said that the copyright to Fred the Ape falls to the holder of the NFT. Yuga's terms of service are quite clear on this point. Seth may be the original purchaser of the art, but the moment he lost access to the NFT, he lost ownership over the central character in his new show. Digital blockchain sleuths have managed to track the ape to an NFT collector who purchased it from the original thief for upwards of $200,000. The collector goes on Twitter by the pseudonym Darkwing84 and may or may not be the terror that flaps in the night. So, for a week, Seth tweeted at Darkwing84 begging him or her to chat, DM, talk privately, whatever the tweeters do these days, to see if they can come to a deal and make this right. The latest is that he appears to have made contact, but that Darkwing hasn't decided what to do with the NFT. To his credit, Seth is still pleading, but he has also started tweeting about precedent-setting debates on IP ownership and exploitation in regards to NFTs, usually an indication he's about to lawyer up as only Hollywood can. And that's where the story gets more interesting to me. Given the general lack of safety nets in the wild west of the blockchain world, it's not clear what legal recourse he has. Under common law, the recipient of stolen property is bound to return it if the rightful owner comes forward with proof of the theft but there isn't any real authority in the blockchain world capable of enforcing common law. One possibility would be to challenge the unusual terms of service from Yuga, which have yet to be tried in a courtroom. The show's producers could seek a declaratory judgment that Seth owns the rights to the image as the original purchaser. It wouldn't retrieve the NFT, but it would head off any IP lawsuits about whether or not the show can use the character. Of course, there's no guarantee that Seth and Darkwing are in the same country, which complicates legal matters. Seth is in California. BuzzFeed is pretty sure they tracked down Darkwing alias to Australia. It's a nightmare scenario for a TV producer. Well, if it's true, that is. There are podcasters out there who think that the theft was staged to drum up publicity for the new show. That Darkwing 84 is actually a friend of Seth's. Or possibly an alt account. That even by covering this story, I'm feeding into the marketing hype, trying to drum up some sort of viral interest in his new show. Maybe. But that shouldn't excuse him from the firehose of my scorn. I've seen Robot Chicken. There's intelligence to the writing, but the execution is hit or miss. 
It reminds me a little bit of Family Guy, another overrated show by a guy named Seth. I know I'm going to get flack for this from all you nerds out there who've drunk the Seth Kool-Aid, but I'm going to lay it out here. Family Guy has some great sketches, but that's about all. Sketch comedy in bite-sized, three-minute, YouTube-ready chunks strung together by non-sequiturs and awkward pauses for 22 minutes at a time. And I emphasize some sketches. For every funny, well-written sketch of either show, there's a half-dozen scenes where all the comedy comes from somebody saying something sarcastic or shocking, not shocking, and the rest of the characters just stand around making forced, nervous chuckling. Just to be clear to all the other self-styled comedic Seths out there, cringe comedy is not comedy. Saying something slightly edgy or outside of your group's assumed social norms, making everybody else uncomfortable in the process, does not equal humor. The audience isn't laughing with you, they're laughing for you, because you apparently don't have the self-awareness to realize that you're missing funny by a mile and landing face-first in pathetic. And don't even get me started on Seth Rogen. Watching the Green Hornet might actually be my one true regret in all my years of theater going. So, do I have high hopes for Seth Green's latest creation? Not really. Not even if they do go viral because of tech news shows like this one. Ultimately, the show's producers have to get the NFT issue resolved regardless, with or without the cooperation of the anonymous collector Darkwing84, or the show will never see the light of day. As of this week, the show's production is officially on hold, pending the outcome of NFT ransom negotiations. Seth is said to have contacted the mysterious collector, but there's no indication that an agreement has been made If Seth has to lawyer up, it could make for some fascinating legal precedent, but it would also mean years before the new show sees the light of a public screen, if ever. Honestly, my default position on new Hollywood comedies is not to get my hopes up. Will I watch the show? Probably not. I mean, maybe, but only if it's good and not just because Seth allegedly got his NFT stolen. I kind of hope the theft is real and not just a publicity stunt. It's waking up a lot of people about the realities of the new crypto realm, a world of commerce without government taxes, regulations, or authoritarian meddling, but also without any of the warranties, guarantees, protections, and safety rails that come with every other consumer product. In short, it's pretty much exactly what cryptocurrency promised. From the What Would Steve Do department, probably the big story of last week, at least judging by the amount of tech blog ink spilled over it, was Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, or WWDC. This is a conference put on yearly by Apple, a company so pretentious that each new feature has to have a marketing name. Oh yes, that icon has been moved four pixels to the left. We call it Smooth Transpose. I made that one up, but it might be true. The obvious highlight of WWDC is the keynote address, where Apple executives strut out on stage and parade out each incremental change to their product line like it's a divine boon being handed down from the gods. The keynote had a little bit of extra pomp this year, being the first in-person WWDC since 2019, after two consecutive online-only pageants. And boy, did the tech writers lap it up. So first of all, let's run down the uninteresting stuff they announced before moving on to the stuff I feel like commenting on. Apple announced incremental updates to the MacBook Pro, a new MacBook Air with a higher price tag, some new Apple Watch features that six people will care about, incremental updates to macOS and iPadOS. They announced a successor to the Apple M1 chip, innovatively named the M2. The keynote speaker rattled off on a lot of specs for the chip and breathlessly promised that the new chip will have, quote, up to 40% more performance than the M1 chip. 
I feel it necessary to point out that the phrase up to is bullshit marketing speak for the more precise mathematical term less than. Not one person on Sage saw fit to point that out during the presentation, though. The speaker was ecstatic to list the number of new products which will be getting an M2 chip. It is fortunate that the silicon chip shortage plaguing the rest of the hardware industry does not seem to have reached Cupertino. Apple also announced the new iPhone 14 coming out in September. If you want the full spit-encrusted details of that, tune in to literally any other tech news show. They're all a lot more excited about it than I am. Along with the new iPhone will be the next version of the operating system, iOS 16. It will be coming to iPhone 8 and later, a fact which has caused a bit of stir among iPhone 7 users whose less than five-year-old hardware will suddenly be gaining the dreaded legacy label. According to some Statista numbers that I found um, from Q4 of last year, the iPhone 7, notable for being the first model with no headphone jack, was still the most popular iPhone, accounting for nearly 10% of all mobile web usage in December of 2021. So, it makes sense that a company with strong financial incentives to sell you a new handset every year would stop supporting the older, more popular ones. iOS 16 comes with a number of highly anticipated features, such as being able to change the filter color applied to your lock screen photo. The OS is also getting automatic updates on by default. For now, they're only being used for security updates, but I predict they'll get around to using it for frivolous things like font packs and ads in a future release, probably the same one where they remove the option to turn it off. As with all automatic updates, I look forward to many future shows wherein I get to tell you about the supply chain exploits that this enables. Also announced, iMessage is getting SharePlay integration. What does this mean? SharePlay is Apple's implementation and fancy marketing name for technology-assisted simultaneous viewing, an idea which allows two people in different locations to start the same movie at the same moment in time in an attempt to create a virtual illusion that they're watching together. The last time that I made fun of this technology was during my CES coverage on Angry Tech News number 17, and it's just as much a gimmick now as it was then. Technology companies have been trying for years to find a way to inject themselves into the authentic experience of watching a movie with another person. It sounds really cool on paper and in marketing materials. Watch a movie simultaneously with your loved one using our device. A lot of people will try it once because of the hype and mostly because of the novelty, but after that, the number of people who'll use it again does not justify the amount of hype and engineering effort that went into it. To wit, First off, if you're in the same place, use the authentic method of watching on the same screen from the same couch. It's got all the features, no middleware to worry about, and the added benefit of physical contact if you're into that sort of thing. But some couples can't be in the same place. Okay, so answer me this. What are you actually trying to get out of the evening? Just some intimacy? You can get a lot more of that by dropping the movie part and just chatting or cybersexing. I don't judge. If your goal is the shared experience of having both seen the movie so that you can talk about it later, then, well, both of you watch it. No need to add a layer of tech just to synchronize it down to the moment. You don't have to compare notes until you're both finished. And if you want to compare notes before the movie's over, you're obviously not that into the movie. The only thing that shared watching features add is the necessity to cool your heels waiting on a piss break from somebody who isn't even in the same room as you. You know what? Forget it. You do you. If you honestly think that you have a valid use case for this technology outside of the novelty period, drop me a message explaining how you use it, and I'll reply telling you why that reason is dumb. Anyway, back to WWDC. Apple has now integrated their movie syncing feature with iMessage. 
which means you're no longer limited to a mere voice and video interaction with the person to whom your movie is synced. Now you can experience it using the full power of text messages. To quote from the presentation, now when you want to share a movie on Disney+, Plus, you can start share play together with a friend while chatting in messages. Amazingly, there is exactly no part of that sentence that interests me in the slightest. Moving on. Yet another new feature that Apple has invented, despite other companies having done it for years, comes Apple's new Continuity Camera, which allows you to use an iPhone as your webcam. The company has invented a small clip to mount the iPhone onto the Mac, an accessory which will probably retail for $49.99, and added software to the upcoming iOS 16 and macOS 13 to seamlessly pop up a dialog prompting you to use the feature. If you don't have hardware to run the most recent upcoming version of both operating systems, then in keeping in line with Apple's usual dedication to backward compatibility, you can pound sand. Another new feature iOS is getting is Safety Check Emergency Reset. The feature is marketed entirely, quote, for people in abusive relationships who might have given away all of their passwords and credentials to someone they later decide they don't trust. If your personal safety is at risk, use Emergency Reset to quickly protect your information from people and apps. The feature lets you review all of the people and apps that are allowed to get data from your device and to easily revoke access to them, as well as prompting you to change your Apple ID password. It doesn't uninstall any spy apps that may have been installed, stalkerware, but they do point out that revoking app permissions would, quote, likely disable any tracking software by making it unable to phone home. To be honest, I think this feature is a pretty cool idea, but I think it's short-sighted to identify an abusive spouse as the only potential threat actor. The average person may be in a lot of abusive relationships with people who have access to their phone. Spouse, parent, hackers, most Silicon Valley app makers, your government, and even Apple themselves. In theory, this feature should protect you from stalkerware from all of those sources. Well, except, of course, stalkerware like the Find My network that was put into the OS by Apple themselves, but I digress. And though I have no data to back this up, I would be completely unsurprised to learn that Apple also has an exception for certain government apps. On the topic of Find My, Apple has made an Android app to give Android users notifications if an AirTag is moving with you, in a bid to convince you that they do care about your personal privacy. Of course, in order to get those notifications, you have to install their app on your Android phone. So much for privacy. Apple Wallet, an app which allows you to turn over to Apple full control of your ID, credit cards, bank card, and all of your shopping data, thus ensuring that in the likely event that your phone gets stolen or damaged or your Apple account compromised, you will lose all ability to pay for things or prove who you are, is getting a couple new features. In the states that allow you to load your digital ID directly into your phone, there is a new Protect Your ID and Age privacy feature designed for places like bars where you need an ID to get in. When in this mode, the app doesn't show your birth date or name, just your photo and a message from Apple assuring people that you're over 21. And I've no doubt bouncers are lining up to blindly accept that instead of an actual ID. The big wallet feature making waves is Apple Pay Later, a form of instant financing directly from any payment dialogue on your phone. By clicking the Pay Later button, Apple will let you spread the cost of whatever you're purchasing out over the next six weeks. As Adam and John from the No Agenda shows often say, Silicon Valley wants to become your bank. Extending a line of credit, it sure looks like they're doing it. Obviously, details are extremely sparse. For example, what does the company do if you default? Does the seller get reimbursed? Does Apple carry FDIC insurance? 
For Apple's sake, I hope they thought this one through really, really well. There are a lot of banking regulations to follow out there. And they are drastically different from country to country. Silicon Valley are not exactly the most popular industry right now amongst a lot of countries with Byzantine banking regulations and politicians with axes to grind. And then we get to the most technologically interesting, interesting as in, may you live in interesting times, interesting, feature announced at WWDC. The presenter announced a new feature in iMessage that purports to let the sender of a message edit or delete already sent iMessages. To potentially prevent embarrassing situations is the reason given. Okay, real quick, I'm going to diagnose the internet's root social problems. For that, I refer back to John Gabriel's Greater Internet Dickwad Theorem, which states roughly that anonymity without consequence breeds incivility. In the real world, or at least the one that I grew up in, there are consequences for starting shit. Walk around calling someone awful names, and sooner or later you're going to get popped in the face for it. Do it often enough and to enough people and sooner or later you will run across someone as poorly adjusted as you are and you could get shivved for your trouble. Action, consequence. Thus, people have a built-in incentive to be civil to each other. On social media, there are far fewer consequences to being an antisocial dirtbag. You can walk into a chat room, say the most vulgar things and even toss around death threats and what's the worst they're going to do? Block you? It's no wonder an entire generation has grown up thinking that words are the same as violence. Being sheltered their whole lives behind a screen, most of them have probably never experienced physical violence. What Apple is purporting to do with this feature only exacerbates the problem I just outlined. Apple wants to remove the consequences of drunk and angry texting. But I'm not sure whichever committee brained this one up actually thought that one all the way through. It sounds good on paper. You make a mistake and you don't want to deal with the consequences. Who doesn't want that? I mean, other than it further incentivizes incivility, but that's a tragedy for the commons, not the Apple user, right? But the other thing such a feature would do is allow someone to send harassing messages and then delete the evidence once the psychological harm has been inflicted. What Apple is doing here has the potential to turn iMessage into the world's biggest harassment platform. Now, to be clear, Apple, in true Apple style, has released no details whatsoever about how this might work. Is there a time limit to deleting message, or can I go back and re remove my dick pics from 2003? So, because there's no official details, let's fill some in using the time-honored technique of wild speculation. Let's start with what is technologically possible. SMS works like email. When you send a message, that data leaves your device and arrives on the recipient's device where it is stored until they read and or delete it. In general, only the owner of a device can delete data from it. In fact, that's a pretty good way to define who is the owner. It's certainly a more useful definition than who paid money for it. So the sender of an SMS, who is usually not the owner of the recipient's device, doesn't actually have the power to delete a received message. They can only ask the owner to do so on their behalf. Back in the day, I remember Outlook 2007 had a feature to try to recall a sent email. Yeah, Apple didn't come up with this idea either. What a shocker. When someone wanted to recall their message, Outlook would show a pop-up on the recipient's screen saying, so-and-so would like you to recall the message with this subject line, yes, no. Being the curious sort who likes drama, I don't think I ever once clicked yes to that dialogue. Instead, I usually dug through my inbox to see if I could attentively read whatever it is that they didn't want me to see. And I'm not alone. Trying to recall a message in Outlook does nothing more than call attention to the message that you don't want people to see. Which is why in all my time at the company, I don't think I saw that dialog box more than two dozen times. But of course, iMessage isn't SMS. 
and your phone is not yours. It's Apple's. Microsoft at least treated it like a choice before deleting data off your hard drive, but that's not really Apple's style. They don't even pretend like the user, you know, that person who dropped a thousand dollars on your phone has any control whatsoever. iMessages are a completely proprietary format. Behind the scenes, iMessages are stored on Apple's cloud servers where they're easy to delete. They are cached to the local device, but there's little doubt that the Apple-controlled Messages app will happily delete a message. Even if you saw the message before it was deleted, iMessage will just have to gaslight you and tell you it never existed. Does anyone wonder why Apple pushes iMessage so hard over more open and interoperable formats like SMS? Apple can't delete your data in an app that they don't control. If you use a messaging alternative, or God forbid if you use an Android, you don't get all of those cool iMessage features, including the ability to have your data silently deleted. As you may, may have gathered from this rant, I don't really like proprietary communication formats where you can only access them from one company's software. Most social media, Reddit, Discord, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, store data on their servers and you view messages retrieved on the fly through their proprietary interfaces. They can delete, edit, modify, and censor user-generated messages at their whim and can even generate fakes and try to convince you they're authentic. Communication is the cornerstone of any society. It is literally necessary for any two human beings to interact. When someone can control communication, they control society. We see examples of this every day in our television, our social media, and our news media. Every day our communication is filled with garbage, fluff, omissions, and outright propaganda. Anybody who doesn't see that is in a thought-controlled bubble. Which is why I prefer to only communicate using open standard protocols, email, SMS, IRC, ActivityPub, protocols with many different apps to use for them. Protocols where I could theoretically write my own app given the time and motivation. It's a simple rule of thumb. If there's only one program that will ever be able to read a message, then I can't trust the message. After all, how do I know whether it was sent by you or the app's developer? So as you may expect, in the last three weeks, there's a lot of people to thank. Uh, first of all, a big ATN thank you to Jay Codaccini, who sent in his first ATN donation. And thank you immensely to Brian Janak, Progo, Rachel Zimmerman, Raymond Zorger, Christopher Reamer, and Sharky Shark for their continued recurring fiat support of Angry Tech News. Also, thank you to more people than I can count for sending Satoshis to ATN's Podcasting 2.0 node. I mean, literally more people than I can count because my reporting scripts only show the last 128 entries and between ATN and my appearances on Bulls with Buds and Grumpy Old Ben's, you all overloaded that queue. I guess I've got to go fix my script now. Thanks for making more work for me, jerks. I do need to call out one booster in particular, though. Tiger McMeow Meow Face. Yes, that is what he chooses to be called. Made his first donation ever to any podcast last month to Angry Tech News. Like the disorganized podcaster I am, I completely forgot to call him out. So thanks to you too, and I am sorry for that. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's $50 or $150. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. 
Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry. Good day to you. It is time for story time. All right, let's start with the background stuff. So for those of you who don't know, I have two children. Uh, The older is nearing seven years old, and the the younger one is almost four. Both of them are girls. Personality-wise, the older daughter is, well, she's tough as hell. She's a sweetheart, never wants to hurt anyone, but she's also tough as nails and, and incredibly strong for her age. One day... I'm actually worried she's going to be bullied too much at school and she's going to beat someone's ass for it. My other daughter, on the other hand, is an emotional train wreck. Telling her to take a bite of her dinner that she's been prodding and poking at for the last 45 minutes will bring her to tears. All right, the story. Today I was in the bedroom uh, folding some laundry. Needed a moment of peace, you know, from the children. So I gave their tablets to them and uh, let them play with them for an hour or so in the living room. So first I hear a scream, then crying. It's my older daughter, and that is one distraught cry. She is very upset. I hear her saying, my tablet, sissy, that's my tablet. And then more very upset crying follows. I mean, like, this is like really broken up crying. Immediately, I'm thinking of the worst. Like, the younger one knocked the tablet down or dropped something on it. It's broken. Doesn't work anymore. I don't know. I rush out there and notice that the tablet appears to be on in one piece and actively playing some kind of kid's video. All seems okay. What happened, honey? She sneezed on my tablet. Um, okay? She was eating crackers and now there's cracker bits all over my tablet. So here is where the insensitive Tony meets with the caring father. Tony wants to say, for the love of Christ, get over it. The father wants to say, oh, baby, it's not that big a deal. We can clean it up. So, of course, there I am, giving my older daughter a hug and a paper towel to wipe off her tablet. Afterwards, I started thinking about her reaction and how severe it was to a simple messy sneeze, something that seemed like A simple inconvenience to me was nearly world-ending to this six-year-old child. Then I started thinking about all the customers I work with on a daily basis and realized, wow, some people just don't grow out of it. I guess the moral of the story here is, think about the situation from more angles than just your emotional response and try to figure out how big of a deal this really is. If you come into my store swearing at me or crying hysterically because your text messages on your phone take more than 30 minutes to go through, don't expect the most sympathy from me. Sure, it's an issue, but are your reactions really appropriate to the situation? To end, remember that the person you're working with in customer service isn't morally required to give two shits about you. If you give them extra reason not to care, they ain't gonna be worth talking to.